everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Trees A Crowd, the natural history podcast where I, the actor, environmentalist and podcaster David Oakes, talk to people inspired by or dedicated to the natural world. It is a slightly longer than normal episode this week, so I'll keep the introduction brief and let my guest do most of the talking. But for this month's episode, I travelled across to the Isle of Man, smack in the middle of the Irish Sea, incongruously over the middle weekend of the Manx TT, to talk to the Phileas Fogg of small island enthusiasts, a Yorkshire-born man of the world, horticultural nurseryman, scuba diver, and head to the Manx Wildlife Trust, Mr Lee Morris. That is it. That is the intro. Enjoy. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Anyone who's listening will realise very quickly that you're not a native of the Isle of Man because you've got quite a thick Yorkshire accent. I didn't think I had, but when I go home, I start talking really broad. But people <laughs> tell me when I say I didn't realise I had a Yorkshire accent, they just shake their heads at me. So apparently I, I do. So how, how does a man from Yorkshire end up on the Isle of Man? There's a long answer to that. I'll try and give a short one. First of all, I had been here before. My background was horticulture. When I studied horticulture at Pershaw College in Worcestershire, one of my best mates lived on the Isle of Man and he's still here as a as a gardener and I visited him in 1999 it was the year of the eclipse in Cornwall I did a road trip to Cornwall then came here and I'd just brought my spaniel and walked around the island and it was uh, fantastic so I knew it was a nice place and then various things in life got to a point where what do I do next and I saw the job advertised here as the CEO of Max Wildlife Trust so applied had one of the interviews online as you as you do through, these days. As you do. Well, especially if you're based down in St Helena. Saint, I was on an island in St Helena, yeah. So having an online interview in St Helena and then moved here. What are the parallels between life down in the... Is it the South Pacific you're in? South, a- South Atlantic. South Atlantic with St Helena and the Isle of Man. I mean, one sounds tropical and idyllic and wonderful and the other one sounds like, I mean, it's the Isle of Man. I think people have hmm. their own aspersions of what they think the Isle of Man is and hopefully by the end of this episode they will have a different idea. I think people don't know how good the Isle of Man is. Um, I should declare I'm on the Visit Isle of Man board now. <laughs> and I'm the CEO of the Today's Wildlife Trust. Today's episode is yes. sponsored by... By Visit Isle of Man. But, but genuinely, I, I wouldn't have joined the Visit Isle of Man board unless I thought it was worth selling. I, I could never be a salesman. You know, I, when I used to manage a plant nursery, I always used to feel sorry for people that would turn up and try and sell me bad products. Because just... But a, a good product sells itself. But I think we are a bit of an unkept secret and maybe that goes back to the mythology of you know Mananan and Mananan's cloak and the mist that keeps people away from the Isle of Man back to that we actually don't want people to come here sure. unless unless for two weeks of the year to for motorbikes Mananan is the official name it's the, the god of the sea so okay. um so Mananan's cloak is literally that the, the sea mist that would, would would shield the Isle of Man I is it often covered in mist? Because it's not today, it's quite nice it's today. Today it's covered, it, it's not covered today. Um, yeah, there are days where the whole island is, is misted out. I was on Lundy quite recently and I really liked the day when we couldn't see the mainland because it felt like you were in sort of an island version of Brigadoon and completely sort of held off in your own little private idyll. But yeah, you can see, I'm told that you can see England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland all at one point if you get up on the 
What's yeah. the tallest mountain on the Snaith, island? Snaith, Snaithfell. From Snaithfell, you can see. Is it a, is it a mountain? No. Yes, it, it is. is. Just over 2,000 feet. Oh, wow. 2,000 and, I might get this wrong, it's 26, I think. But it's definitely over 2,000 feet, so it's officially the Isle of Man's only mountain. Okay. And is that because we're on a fault line? I don't know if that's because we're on a fault line, but we certainly have a mountain, and there is a fault. The fault line's actually, the, the best place to see the fault line is at a place called Niarbel. And I'm just trying to place that on a, on a map. There's, there's a little bay near Niarbel where you, a wiser geologist could point out the fault line. So the, the fault line's there. But to Centralina, I think there's, you know, Centralina was, when I moved here and I arrived on the Isle of Man, you get that conversation because, because people know I'm a, from England originally and, you know, the Isle of Man is an island. Occasionally in conversation people say, you know, it's you know, it's small island, you need to get used to being on a small island. And I don't want to sound glib or... But actually, this isn't that small an island. When you spent two years on an island that gets one boat a month, sure, and that there's four thousand people, yeah, and it only had an airport for two years, then t- to come here with eighty-five thousand people and it's thirty-five miles long, and we get you know three or four boats a day and a load of aircraft, mm-hmm. the scale of remoteness is is far different. But but what's very interesting to me is that if if you put the UK at the top of the graph and St Helena at the bottom of the graph then at various points the Isle of Man is much more like the UK Mm -hmm. and in other points the Isle of Man is much more like St Helena and so I haven't quite worked worked out the difference but one thing I'm certain of is that being based in St Helena for two years being on an island doesn't faze me okay do you think I, that was one of the reasons why you got the job yeah yeah, we can leave him alone and he'll get on to doing his own thing I think so uh, and I actually really do enjoy being on island. I like the concept of an island. Uh-huh. And and the other thing is that, you know, St Helena and I, and I spent some time on Ascension Island when I was in the South Atlantic as well, UK overseas territories. The Isle of Man, delightfully, is a Crown dependency. And there is um, a lovely club of called the UK Overseas Territories Conservation Forum, which you can... Does be- it have a catchier name than that? No. No, OK. That's it. And the acronym <laughs> is... UCOT CF, but but to get in that club, you can only be in it if you're a conservation organisation based on a UK overseas territory or a county dependency. So we're in. So we're now in a club with St Helena, Ascension, Pitcairn, Caymans, British Virgin Islands. Wonderful. So we have those those inter-island conversations, sure. which actually is is a very different conversation to the ones that I have as part of the Federation of Wildlife Trust. Sure. But even within the federation, you're up there with Ulster and Scotland as a whole nation. Yeah. Wildlife Trust. So again, you're in a different niche altogether. Even though you're a, you seem to be a small presence, you get to play football with the big boys. It's an interesting dynamic in the Wildlife Trust Federation. So I'm told my wife tells me I'm too humble sometimes, but I, I think humbly we're a small. In the, in the 46 Wildlife Trust, we are we are quite a small beings. We're probably in the smallest five in terms of staff and turnover. Mm-hmm. I've um, met you all today. Yeah, <laughs> no, I have not, not quite. quite, not quite. <laughs> But actually, we do do whole nation stuff. You know, and the Isle of Man is a biosphere. We're the only UNESCO biosphere that's the complete nation is a UNESCO biosphere in the world. Okay. Let's just bank that. You know, we are the only whole nation biosphere in the whole world. We are a completely independent nation. We work with the government at the highest level. I have meetings with the chief minister, with the minister of DEFA, with the senior civil servants... The highest level, we're having conversations around biodiversity strategies, climate change mitigation policies. We're now delivering the island's agri-environment scheme with a key partner on that. So 
although some people might say, oh, it's only 35 miles by 10 and it's not that many, we are doing whole nation stuff. So the vision is that we can be what good looks like. Sure. And also when you then go into conversations with the other UK overseas territories, they look to us and genuinely are saying, wow, you work with your government. Wow, you've got a you've got a, an island biodiversity strategy. How cool is that? So in that world, we're almost a leader of what we're doing for others to help. And then in the Wildlife Trust Federation of One, my, my own, if you like, vision for this is that, you know, if you're, if you're in Yorkshire or Sussex or Surrey and you want to influence English policy, mm-hmm. well, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, you're too smaller in, in the collective of England. You've got to fight bigger than you can. But, but maybe there's an opportunity for for senior managers in the Wildlife Trust or, or, or middle managers or junior managers or aspiring, you know, almost to come to a place like the Isle of Man and suddenly be, be said, right, we're having a meeting with the Minister of Agriculture next week sure. and we're going to work this development for an agri-environment policy. So my, my ambition is, my vision is that the, the Isle of Man, apart from ensuring that the Isle of Man is what good looks like in terms of a small nation biosphere, we are also a place that can, for the bigger federation of wildlife trust be a place that can actually help others develop so okay here's the here's the question if, if you are what good look what good looks like what does good look like in terms of one particular project what are you doing that benefits from all of what we've just said i think that good would look like i'll start with the big scale okay 88 percent of our island some people say it's 75 but, but definitely between 75 and 88 percent of the island is is, is under agriculture is controlled by agriculture you told me that it was something like 451 farmers 351 no there's 351 active farmers and there's probably another hundred that are piddling about you know sure. little back garden allotments but there are 350 plus active farmers let's call it 88 percent of the of the island and the whole direction of wildlife trust now is to ensure that our nature reserves are maintained they become the you know they're the absolute core of what we do almost the inspiring places Mm -hmm. but really what we need to do is influence beyond our nature reserves so our nature reserves cover 0.25 percent of the isle of man that's not a huge amount no and and when we're 50 years old next year and our legacy so far you could say is 0.25 percent of the Isle of Man. Now it's much more than that. You know, we education and inspiring people we've been doing for years. But imagine if we're now, as the whole of the Wildlife Trust Federation is doing, is saying, right, how can we go bigger than that? How can we do landscape scale and really make impact across lots? We, in my view, have got the key to the door now. We are the delivery partner for the Agri Environment Scheme. Sure. Our Agri Environment Officer, David David Bellamy, appropriately named, he is the David Bellamy. People say, is he the David Bellamy? And I used to say. No, no, that's the other guy with the beard. But now I don't. I say, yes, he is. Yeah. And the one you're thinking of is the guy that was... In oh, the he's, he's yeah. passed away now, sadly. And I think yeah. the last sort of decade of his life he spent sort of not necessarily supporting the belief that climate change was real, sadly. I think that's, that's right. But, but we have a great connection now with farmers. We're, it's not an easy win. They're not all suddenly going to turn farms into nature reserves. But we, we, certainly under my watch, have to be pragmatic. We need to work with farmers and we need to work with developers and we need to work with the shooting fraternity and we need to work with the wildlife part that keep animals in captivity. We need to, we need to have our own red lines, but we need to work pragmatically with those people if we're going to have big scale. Well, this was one of my big questions for you in particular, because you come from a background of horticulture and working with creating crops and selling crops and so you come from a farming background if you will is that a benefit 
or do some people within the environmental sphere see you as sort of <laughs> being a mole for the other side having sort of wheedled your way in I am positive and I am half full so I, I genuinely think that I'm in the right place at the right time for uh -huh. this so my undergrad and postgrad were crop production horticultural technology crop crop growing okay. so so not gene edited you're talking more about well a little it was just when I did my masters it was 2001 and it was an international horticulture and I spent half my time in the Netherlands where they've got the most intensive high-tech horticultural crop growing in the world mm -hmm. and and there was a, there was an element of that and and I've got a I remember going to a Max National Farmers meeting union here when I'd not been on the island very long and there is that tension between wildlife trusts and agriculture let's say which is unsurprising conservationists and agriculture absolutely it's there but we we and i i don't like saying i but i'm going to say it on this time i've spent a, a lot of time building up a good and increasingly good relationship with manx farmers we got an mou with the max national farmers union in, in after i'd been here a few months and i think genuinely one of the ways that we achieved that was that they knew my background. They knew that actually, when we were talking about FIPA pesticide certificates, I'd, I'd got them. I could I could set up a boom spray. And now I'm not in the in the role I'm in now. I'm not proud of that. But but you know, it's not a. It's not a perfect world. And b. At the time, you didn't know that. Every, yeah. Life's a school day. I you know when I was trained in at Ascombe Bryan and Pershaw College in the late 80s and early 90s about how to be a horticulturist. These conversations around biodynamics organic farming were very 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 fringe it's yeah. only in the last years that this has become more mainstream it's one of the things that i came to not just realize but to completely support was the fact that when we have introduced pesticides and fertilizers to farming methodology it's always been with the best intentions it's been to up crop yield and resilience of said crop in order to feed the country and feed the planet we never sort of deliberately set out to destroy biodiversity or to degrade the soil quality unfortunately they were the byproduct of good intentions so i guess my question is now you are very firmly with your feet on the other side what are you trying to get farmers to do is it about rewilding their land is it about changing the methodology of how they farm like what what are you doing and because it's also worth saying that you're not part of the uk's elms project which is the environment land management scheme you have as a whole nation the we have our own agri-environment strategy we have our own agri-environment handbook so what is that trying to do there's different things that farmers can apply for the, the, the first year of getting off the ground it started on the 1st of april last year the the, the isle of man agri-environment scheme it's funded the, the farmers have, have, have had some of their subsidy taken away so they used to get about 75 pounds per acre per year subsidy for farmland that mm -hmm. was top sliced down to about 62 62 pound 50 and the way that farmers have been trying to get that back is to apply for agri-environment scheme initiatives from within the handbook and and there are 40 plus initiatives ranging from you know tree planting leaving uh, stubbles over winter bird boxes there's a whole range of them and when we were looking at tendering for this there was a, there was a conversation and this again was was in my first year my view was that my life this is the bus is cut this bus is coming mm -hmm. and we need to get this bus because if we're never going to get a better chance to influence 88 percent of the island in a positive way now the the detractors or the, if you like the the cautioners on this were saying that it wasn't a perfect scheme for nature the what the agri-environment scheme and you know, it wasn't going far enough for nature and you know we're better off 
not getting involved. Now, my pragmatic approach was this bus is coming, we've got to get it. And, and actually, if I didn't work for Manx Wildlife Trust and I was, a, let, let me say, an extreme conservationist sure. and, and I knew that the Isle of Man was going to have an agri-environment scheme and that I had my doubts about how good it was going to be for nature, who would I want to run it for me? I'd want Max Wildlife Trust to run it for me because I'd believe that they would do it as they'd get it to work as good as they possibly could for mm-hmm. nature in a pragmatic way. And that's exactly what we're doing with the Agri-Environment Scheme. And I think we've got the right people in, in, in person in David Bellamy, plus also my background, I'm hoping, because I've got that background of crop growing, I can, I can have those conversations with, with MNFU, etc. We've got a great team of people who want to make small gains across that. But imagine a small gain across 88% of the island. What yeah. a difference that would be compared to 0.25% of our nature reserve. I mean, when you come onto the island, the first thing you notice is the number of fields. If you fly in, that is, if you come in by sea, which you should do, because it's got a lower carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah you see, it is, it's, a, it's a checkerboard. Like there's a hell of a lot of dry stone walls and a hell of a lot of a lot of cattle. We have to applaud Manx farming, I, and the Manx National Farmers Union would say this, and they would be right. We have small fields. Small fields equals more hedgerows, yeah. equals more field boundaries. We should celebrate that, and we do. You know, Manx pastureland farming is not intensive dairy farming of, of, of some areas or intensive beef. So our farming is already ahead of the curve. But if I come back to St Helena. It's certainly not as good as the small-scale production in Centralina. Sure. You know, and the way that they manage nature and the environment, it's much more intrinsic than in that, that little island in the South Atlantic. So I think we could learn some things on the Isle of Man from how Centralina do some of their agriculture. So, having spoken to you all morning, there are two things that sort of seem very high at the high at the top of your sort of your skill and expertise one of which is what we've spoken about crops and agriculture and the other is is scuba diving in the marine world <laughs> now where did that start why are you such a keen diver i think i always wanted to dive and i always i genuinely if there was a documentary i remember as a kid watching world about us would be one and the other one was Jacques cousteau which sounds a bit cliched because there are lots of divers that say that mm-hmm. but maybe it's true maybe oh, Jacques cousteau's a huge presence in the in the his, lives of people who go on his legacy i remember collecting the brook one pg tips cards of Jacques mm-hmm. cousteau's undersea world he's a massive legacy that man has had and he's actually his sons and everything else followed so so i did that i never did that because i just did different things I didn't try and dive or couldn't afford to dive. It, it just wasn't a priority for me in, in other hobbies. And it wasn't till, oh, blimey, probably just, just over 20 years ago, I was on holiday in a warm place and thought, everything, the stars aligned to do a tri-dive. Sure. And as soon as I did a tri-dive, I was beating myself up for why I hadn't dived for 15 or 20 years previously. I came back home, I was doing my master's actually, did, did a paddy course in Essex, um, in a and quarry then a, or in a, in, a, in a place called actually I did the course in Essex but we went to Leicestershire in a place called Gildenburg which was a muddy hole where I, <laughs> where I came out of this muddy hole having seen a couple of perch thinking it was the world's best dive <laughs> and at that point realised that I needed to dive then moved to Scotland a couple of years later joined realised that you know in Scotland that was a place to dive that was in dive books yeah you were saying earlier that you, you think got into the, diving there, the, yeah. the Shetlands are the sort of the best place to dive in the UK because of the clear visibility oh the Shetlands were spectacular but but going to Scotland so I moved to having gone from horticulture I, I spent a lot of time working in education mm-hmm. land-based colleges teaching horticulture then a bit of a life-changing moment and suddenly something and, and then I moved went out of an interview in Edinburgh for an hour at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh 
and suddenly became the head of School of Horticulture at one of the world's best botanical gardens. It's a wonderful one up there. It's spectacular. Yeah. So I moved up to there in 2004, bought a book on diving and realised that Scottish diving was great. And what was interesting then, that I'd come from a horticultural background, tree nurseries, managed my own nursery for a bit, in a, in a college actually, managed, managed nurseries, did all the horticultural qualifications, moved up to Edinburgh, we're suddenly then running the School of Horticulture, but they've got a huge team of conservationists and botanists and ecologists working in plant conservation projects all over the world. Sure. And as head of School of Horticulture, I had a fantastic 10 years getting involved in all these foreign projects. Now, they weren't just horticultural projects, they were conservation projects. So that... that can you have one without the other? Yes. Sadly, probably. You can, yeah. I became much more of a conservationist significantly more when I was at Edinburgh and actually after 10 years why was that I think because it was awareness I just didn't know before and I think that's what's inspired me more about communicating with people and engaging with people because because actually a lot of it's interesting you can't just educate people and get them to change you know if you do that if you smoke that you will die if you eat that you will die if you use that plastic bag the world will end Mm -hmm. is it is an educational statement and we know and the world knows that you have to do different strategies for behavior change but for me there are certain things when I and I I just didn't know that and when I knew that I completely changed so seeing I think for me I'm I'm very visual my epiphany actually going back a, a, a little bit was when I was at the Welsh College of Horticulture I was I went there as a as a training officer in, in about 98 then became a lecturer, then head of department, then one of the directors at the college. And it was in North Wales, and we were running everything from agriculture and animal care, lots of horticultural crop growing. We had our own horticultural farm. We set up an organic farm, which uh-huh. was quite a, a journey for me. And then one day, I got an ask from our principal to show a lady round our farm. And she was a chrysanthemum grower from Turkey, who <laughs> called, that, no. called <laughs> Naz... Ten times in a row. Yeah, <laughs> Naz I won't pronounce right, but that's how I remember it. Uh-huh. And um, I showed her around, and she was on a rotary ex- group study exchange from Turkey. Very nice, didn't uh-huh. know what that was. So we came in, um, I showed her around, I got a letter the week later from Mould Rotary Club saying, Dear Lee, thanks for showing Naz round. Please can you put this poster up? We're organising a group study exchange to India and Nepal next year, and we'd like young professionals to apply. Did you apply? Yeah. And then I went to a selection in Chester. There was 35 other people in the room, all of which, I think, apart from me, had, had applied for this multiple times, knew all about Rotary. Uh-huh. I'd rocked up. I'd bought the Burlitz Guide to India, <laughs> read up about Calcutta Botanic Gardens and agriculture, and, and I was told on the spot to do a presentation. We had half an hour to prepare this. I did a presentation. The bloke came out an hour and I said, right, first, Lee Morris, you're going to India and Nepal for six weeks. Now... I went in... in were you on placements or were you exploring? No, we, it was the most life-changing two months of my life. Hmm. So we went in January and February 1999. And I'd never been to a developing country before. I'd been to South Africa and I'd seen squatter camps when I did... I did a placement at Kirstenbosch in 94. Mm-hmm. But I'd not really been to a developing country. And on the Rotary trip, there was four of us, plus a Rotarian... And we basically travelled around West Bengal, Kolkata, Calcutta, into Nepal. And we were visiting Rotary Club. So we had a short presentation. We had a long presentation. Mm-hmm. We, but we were seeing Rotary in action. And whereas in our country, or our countries, if I include the Isle of Man, Rotary is almost, I don't want to sound derogatory, but it's not seen as a necessity. No. But in India, 
there were things there that wouldn't you know we went to a leprosy hospital with shit walls manky walls rusty bedsteads and people there with dropped wrists where they'd had the and and they wouldn't have had that dank hospital without the funding of rotary you know we met doctors i went to rural schools anyway life-changing came back and thought the world's a bigger place than this what can i do and at that point i thought well i'm a horticulturist and i'd always had a pond i always wanted to do vso it was, it was something that i'd always talked about in my life about wanting to mm. do voluntary service overseas and i was in the wales i was teaching i was running departments in wales i thought i'm gonna get out how do i do that i need to so anyway i found a master's in international horticulture and i went to the principal in wales and asked for a sabbatical to uh-huh. go and do it where was it it was in essex in the netherlands okay but it was an international horticulture, and I thought it would take me to the next step. That if I really wanted to go and do development work, then I'd, I'd have the. It'd give I'd you a good footprint to take to, to a, go. Yeah. It would give me more of an international context, and it would give me a bit of paper that would get me into those Labrador. Just got visited past. by Labrador, yeah. something. Um, and it would allow me to do that. So the principal said, "We, we, you know, we can't let you go, Lee." So long and the short of it, I said, "I'm going." So they said, "Okay, we'll support you. Then we'll help you through it, but we need you to sign up to come back for two years." And this is where life's synchronous. So I, I had this amazing experience in, in Essex and the Netherlands, and immersed myself completely and learnt so much. Learned how to use Google, bizarrely. <laughs> but came back to Wales. Two years, then I had to to pay off my sabbatical to go and do this masters. Yeah. Almost two years to the day, the job advert arrived for the head of school of horticulture in Edinburgh. And I then moved to Edinburgh and got involved in all these international conservation projects. I, I did a short placement for VSO in Ethiopia. I got permission from Edinburgh. Anyway, but that was the journey. And so in Edinburgh, I learned more about conservation, be it in Laos, China, wherever we, you know, Middle East. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East working on, on plant conservation projects there. And then the journey went a bit of an epiphany where you can't just do it with plants. And, and the diving took me down a sea search route. So, yeah. so I did the courses started doing a bit of citizen science diving mm-hmm. um so sea search gave me the opportunity as a as a hobby scuba diverist to get involved in something more marine conservation so then bizarrely the marine conservation society which had been a member that runs sea search mm-hmm. were, were advertising for trustees and they'd specifically asked for us for a trustee based in scotland and I thought, well, I'm not a marine biologist. And someone said, no, don't worry, Lee, they've got loads of those. <laughs> you know, what they want is people that, that can work in a broader way, educate, done it. Anyway, so I applied and got onto the board of MCS. Uh-huh. So suddenly, in my conservation journey, I was working in plant conservation projects. I was involved in str- the highest level governance discussions with the board of the British Marine Conservation Society. Uh-huh. It was fantastic. My own, my own learning and you know, influences on me was, was, was going really well. Um, in my view, it, it was the graph was going up. I then realised that you can't just do it with plants. Mm-hmm. Decided that, you know, for whatever reasons, 10 years in Edinburgh Botanic Garden was my time to move. You know, you only live once. Sure. And actually, bizarrely, no one, no, the last person that had my job was there 30 odd years and got an MBE. And everyone, the, the whole culture of, of anyone in my sort of role in the botanics was you stay there till you retire and get a sure. medal and retire. I, I wanted well, to do something different. I think in any line of work, you can get people getting a bit stu- too stale if they stay there. My, my father was a, it was a vicar and they always tried to move people from parish to parish every six years. But as is often the way, they would end up sort of getting stuck in one place and spend a decade, two decades, three decades in one church. And 
congregations would get stale. People's ability to learn and to be challenged would, would, sh- would sort of stagnate. As I think moving about is probably a good thing. I, I was very lucky in Edinburgh Botanics. I mean, I think we did some great things while I was there in terms of education and degree, courses, capacity building. But I also, I did get involved in projects. I, I spent a whole chunk of time in Oman over three years, half my life, and, and Yemen and other... And I think there was such a variety, it was almost like changing jobs. And so... Is there anywhere you haven't been? There's loads of places I haven't been. The trouble is, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And the more places you go, the more places you'd like to go. And your list grows. You know this as a diver. Oh, that if you go on a dive boat with people, you then get told about somewhere else, and then suddenly your list of where you want to go next increases. Just before I press record, we were talking about your trip to the Galapagos. Mm. Just as a quick tangent, did you get to dive in the Galapagos? I did. But, but when, I went, when I went to the Galapagos, I'd not dived long. So do I regret that I didn't dive more? No, probably not. So I went on a boat. I backpacked it. I did it on the cheap. I literally just got to Quito, booked on a relatively cheap boat and got a flight to the Galapagos and got on a boat where you could dive. Uh But I was the only person in about 12 paying tourists on this boat that was a scuba diver. So I only did a couple of dives, but they were amazing. I wanted to see turtles underwater. I wanted to see sharks underwater. But actually my best experience underwater in the Galapagos was the first time I snorkeled. And we snorkeled a lot with sea lions. Uh-huh. But the first time I snorkeled, and literally, I joke you not, I put the mask on, I put my snorkel in, I was still, I put my head underwater, and immediately a penguin swam under my mask. <laughs> and I hadn't seen the penguin before I put my head underwater. Uh-huh. That was my first, within 10 seconds of going underwater in the Galapagos, a penguin swam under my mask. It's an amazingly special place. That, 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 yeah. That even from the photos that you were posting on social media the other day of. Um of gannets diving into the sea. Like, when I think of diving, and I go diving, I think about the fish, I think about the submarine flora, and I think about corals and things like that. But there's something kind of amazing about seeing bird life underwater, like existing, things from a different world coming in and existing just as comfortably under there as anything else. Oh, yeah, fantastic. The, the, the guillemots and razorbills, and, and we used to do this in Scotland as well, around St. Abbs, that, that you could go there and they think your bubbles are, are sand eels, is the theory, oh. that they then dive down and explore you and swim around you going, you're not, you're not sand eels, <laughs> who are you? And they'll swim, they'll literally just circumnavigate you. Have you ever been hit by thing. one when they dive in? No, no, they're clever enough. I mean, they're, they're very agile. They almost do look like a big penguin, sure. the guillemots when they swim in. And under the sugarloaf nesting colony here where you get... Lots of razorbills, lots of guillemots, and, and uh, kittiwakes as well. But the guillemots and the razorbills will dive in and swim around. Sure, okay. okay, anyway, so that's the tangent. So you yeah. left Scotland. Where did you go after that? I did a couple of years at the Zoological Society in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. which That's still in Scotland. It's still in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, but what that taught me was that, and that was actually based in, in, in Edinburgh Zoo. We had a wildlife park and that, but they did far more than that. And, and there's, a whole con- there's a whole different channel we could go down about about zoos and etc. And I wasn't a what, great... What was your job there at the zoo? I was director of community conservation. Okay. And so my role was, was to engage people and communities about the conservation projects that the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland did. So in, in Scotland, for example, wildcats, beaver, they were one of the beaver release partners that reintroduced them into Napdale. So... Sure. Beavers, wildcats were the main two, if you like, megafauna mm-hmm. projects. But they, they got involved in a whole, a whole range of conservation projects, both in Scotland and also across. So anteaters in the centre of Brazil was another project. And, hmm. and uh, Did you go out with that one? No, I didn't go with that one. I haven't been there. Um, <laughs> but what it taught me is that, and I, I've come from a world of, I, I really, you know, engaging with people 
and getting people to do things and both to inspire them, give them fun and then get them to hopefully do something better. It's not my adage, but you've got to, you've got to get people to care, haven't you? So you've got to show them it. Yeah. I went from a, a position of probably I didn't really like the idea of animals in captivity in zoos yeah. to completely changing. I, I think zoos and aquariums have got a fantastically important role for conservation. Education and outreach. And, and more importantly so, in the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, wonderful place, great people, one of the world's most special botanic gardens, funded by the Scottish Government, free, to, free entry. Now, although Edinburgh is a fantastic, some people would say, you know, quite affluent city, lots of, you know, middle class, well-off, well-off people there, there, there are poor and deprived areas in and around Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And in my role there, trying to get people from those areas of Edinburgh to visit the botanic garden, even though it was free, you couldn't get them to do it. Yet those same families would take mum, dad, two or three kids to the zoo, paying an entry fee, buying the burgers and the chips and the cuddly toys. They'd be spending 100 to 200 quid a day on a day trip, once or twice a year, Mm -hmm. to take their families to the zoo because the kids love to see a lion or a panda or a wolf because that might be their only nature experience. Now, that's the audience. We can't fix nature with the few passionate conservationists. We can't do it. Unless we, you know, the seven, eight billion people, unless we get more of the people, and, and this is where the whole of the Wildlife Trust with Team Wilder now, about how do we actually get, you know, in commas, one in four people to actually give a shit and actually do something behaviourally different to help nature. Well, I think zoos and aquariums have got an important role. Now, they need to be good zoos, because mm-hmm. there are some bad zoos. Mm-hmm. But the way that's gone... So I've come from a botanic garden world in a zoo. When I got to the zoo, <laughs> with an office in the zoo, within a month, I'm beating myself up. Because what the, have I been doing for all this time in a plant world that's not engaged with the other half of biodiversity? And interestingly, zoos do plants better than botanic gardens do animals. And there are lots of reasons for that globally. But I think the bottom line reason is that, that botanic gardens in the plural know that for the young kids in the poor areas in Edinburgh would not go and see them. No matter how sexy you try and make an orchid or a carrot, <laughs> it's not as sexy, sexy as a panda. Well, I, <laughs> one, I went to a public gardens conference. Actually, this was one of the, my epiphany moments that, that stimulated me to go and change jobs to go to the Zoological Society. So I heard a lady stand up from the uh, American Public Gardens Association who said that carrots are the pandas of botanical gardens. And what she was basically saying is that that botanic gardens need to do community garden projects, get the kids in, pull a little bit of the garden across for growing fruit and veg, get the kids' hands dirty and get them inspired. And Edinburgh Botanics did that really, really well, as other botanic gardens have done. Uh But you can't be a panda for a young kid. So you've got to do both. And by doing both... Then you think, right, well, how do you do it? Then, then you end up in the middle of the South Atlantic for a couple of years. And then you come back to this microcosm of the Isle of Man and think, well, this is how we can be what good looks like. Sure. Super. Well, um, let's put a pause on here. I think we're going to head over to another part of the island and continue this discussion elsewhere. But before we do, can you just tell me a little bit about where we are? Because it's one thing I haven't said. And we came down here to talk about seagrass, really. 
which is something that you are particularly keen on as a, as a diver and someone who's interested in botanicals. Flora. Yeah, we're list- well, I'm hoping that the Seagrass Project, as a, as a horticultural nurseryman scuba diver, it's my perfect project. That's yeah. an environmental project. I've so, got to describe you as a horticultural nursery scuba diver and yes. every single time I refer to you in the, in the literature no. that goes alongside this episode. Well, um, now. imagine, what's interesting is some of these marine biologists that talk about seagrass, they say that they, they, they grow it in labs. They're not. They're growing it in a nursery. <laughs> they just have plant nurseries and they don't know it. Sure. So we're here, we're here on Fort Island and we're looking down at Fort Island Gully and we can just see the head of a of a Atlantic grey seal sticking out there. Mm, there are seals everywhere today. Like yeah, loads board of, them today. of seals. Um, there's another one there. There's an oyster catcher on that rock and then there was a wheat here. That might even be a wheat here straight out in front of us. Do you see on the little on the rock there? Yeah. And we've um, some, we said black caps and there was a was there a chuff earlier. Lots we've, of... had, we've quite a few chuff at the sound. Um, but here, just out here, there is a there is a really dense seagrass bed, and that's where we've recently uh, the the Alaman government recently rediscovered on a photograph a little grooved top top shell. It's, it's a little conical snail, Jujubina striatus, and that's just that's out there in a Are dense seagrass bed. Um, they they were for us. They were they were not known here for okay. for many 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 years. Uh, I think as you go further south, you'll find them. So southern England, I think you'd find grooved top shells, but 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 not here. So we're looking out Fort Island Gully, seals, seagrass patch, bird life, and a wonderful old church next to us. Super. All right. Well, that's this bit done. <laughs> Let's go and see another bit Let's of the island. Let's go see some orchids. Wonderful. Right. As we move from Fort Island Gully in the south of the Isle of Man to close Sartfield Nature Reserve in the north, let me take a quick moment to say that on the 1st of November, you can come to watch a live recording of Trees A Crowd. More information on the where, the when, and most importantly, the who will follow part two of this episode and indeed can be found on our website. But for now, back to Lee on the Isle of Man. Okay, we're off. Where are we, Lee? We've moved. We're now at Close Sart Field Nature Reserve, which is one of Manx Wildlife Trust's, on multiple ways, best flagship iconic nature reserves in the north of the island. Why? It's spectacular right now, just coming into the season for, for orchids. It's, it's a great example of how we've taken uh, 30 years ago what was degraded pasture land, lots of gorse, and through conservation management has turned 30 acres of the Isle of Man into us spectacular wildflower meadows. Um, and we're not quite at the peak yet, but you'll see thousands and thousands of, of spotted orchids, marsh orchids. So what are those purple ones blades. down there? Um, they are heath-spotted orchids. We'll stay on the boardwalk, or our reserve manager will know I've left it. <laughs> but the reason they're called spotted orchids is you can see the spots there on the leaves. It's not actually the spots on the flowers, it's the spots on the leaves is the reason that they're spotted orchids. Okay. But there should be tway blades in here as well, which are a green orchid. There's a couple of patches just further down the border where they normally are. and It's about, it's maybe a little early, but we have a chance of seeing some today. Graham was just saying that it's the most densely populated place for wild orchids in Europe. I didn't know is that. Is that the case? What did you, you can speak, Graham. Oh, sorry. Yeah, what? <laughs> What was the question? What, what were you saying about how densely populated they are? In so it's reportedly the largest concentration of wild orchids in Europe. And when you look at that right now, look at it, it's spectacular, isn't it? There's thousands and thousands of orchids. And, and, and this is a great example of how 
conservation management has, has transformed this. And, and the story, and I don't know, taking over the land, roguing out a lot of the gorse that was there. Graham's looking at a bit of yellow rattle there, which is a wonderful plant because it, it strips nutrients out and it's parasitic. And it takes we should probably away. say who Graham is, actually, as, he, as he's been allowed to speak on the record. Who are you, Graham? Uh, hi, I'm Graham. I'm the engagement manager at Max Wildlife Trust. Great. You can shut up now, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we brought in green hay. I say we, I was clearly long before I arrived in the Mike's Wildlife Trust, but we, we brought in green hay and seeded some of the meadows. And then over time now, and, and as I say, very careful monitoring, we've now turned them into what you're seeing in front of you today, which is spectacular. And this, I, this one is spectacular, you agree, yeah? Yeah, it's amazing. This is not the best meadow. There's better ones we're getting to. That's, that's a tease and a half. But so we're in an area called the Balaf Kurok, and, and we're on the... The west side now of the Balaf Kuruk, and the Balaf Kuruk is the Isle of Man's only designated Ramsar site, which is an international designation of, of, of wetlands. Mm-hmm. So the Balaf Kuruk is known as an area of wetland. The Kuruk is a Manx word, and, and that basically we're under now Kuruk. You know, it's, it's willow willow scrub, it's low forest. You can see in front of us there's willow, willow scrub, and then with the orchid, with the meadows in between. And these, these meadows are agricultural land so these get grazed these are winter grazed we don't have our own flocks but we bring on local farmers bring their sheep on so this is genuine conservation agriculture sure and that's a great segue into the i guess into the fact that we're working with manx farmers now and you know we we want our meadows to be managed in an exemplar way of agriculture Mm -hmm. why couldn't there be more meadows like this there could be and I think those those little wins, if we can get more more of the Manx farmers and more of the, the the community managing their fields to produce this, that would be that would be pretty cool for nature. I spoke to a, a farmer up on the Ings in Yorkshire, who used his cattle to graze a natural England uh, floodplain, and he always saw uh, food as a byproduct of conservation. That was how he sort of saw the, the the way round of it. I mean, I guess that's sort of the same thing that's going on here. I think. You know, coming from a crop growing background, we all eat. You know, everything we we eat every day has been farmed by someone. Mm-hmm. Even if it's us in our own back gardens, we farmed it. It's been farmed. So we need farmers. We need to, we need food, and we need to do it right. And and I think the whole of the world now has realised that farming and conservation need to work more closely together. You you if you silo them, it doesn't work. That, I think, is going to be the massive step. And that's where, you know, we're the delivery partners now for the Isle of Man government's new agri-environment scheme. And, and if we can get that right by working with farmers and we can show that in our small island we can be what good looks like, mm-hmm. then those those methods, those models could be up, hopefully upscaled or, or moved to other small islands and nations, but maybe even upscaled to far bigger nations. So when you say that the farmers have sheep on these meadows what sheep are they are they are they the proper isle of man native species or one of the farmers that we use does have locktons they're the 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 four horned at least four (laughs) sometimes more Um, and they are the very archetypal manx sheep but they're a beautiful looking animal they're also a bit of a scapologist so if you can keep a lockton in a field you'd have no problem keeping any other sheep in a field and we're we're just looking now at getting our own small flock for the first time that we'd actually own sheep, um, which many other wildlife trusts do, but Manx Wildlife Trust have never done that before. 
I'm just slowing down now as we're going to this curragh on the boardwalk because this is one of the prime places where you can often find wallabies just sat there. So um, why are there wallabies on the Isle of Man? The wallabies escaped from the wildlife park uh, in the late 60s, early 70s and the wildlife park is at the east side of the Black Curragh, so not far away from where we are now in Close Sartfield. And the redneck wallabies, uh, natives of Tasmania, they do great in wildlife parks and zoos. They, they're also escapologists and they <laughs> got out of the wildlife park and did what wallabies do and, and have built up a population. And they are quite an emotive issue in the Isle of Man. Some people, extreme views, some people would say that they're a, a non-native animal that's waddling around eating our plants, standing on our bird nests and we need to eradicate them. You know, if they were in New Zealand now, they, well, they are, they're getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. um, other people would say that they've been here long enough and they're a Manx native and they should, we give them an, we should be giving them Manx status, making them proudly Manx and we let them stay forever. What do you think? I think we need to... I'm, I'm not sitting on the fence, but I'm in a world of I think we need <laughs> to know more. Undoubtedly, they're attractive for people. You know, where we want to get people to go, you know, the concept of the zoos, zoos and aquariums. If you want to get people in Douglas to come to the what, to, to come to Close Sartfield Nature Reserve, I guarantee you that if we went now to the majority of the people in Douglas and said, come to Close Sartfield Nature Reserve and we'll show you some orchids, we might get a few takers. But if we went to the bulk of Douglas and said, come to Close Sartfield and we'll show you wallabies. And, and it's... You know, our, our muckers, our volunteers, when I've been here a few times with them doing work, our reserves manager, is, she won't mind me saying, you know, she would get rid of the wallabies. She, she views them as a, as a real damage to her nature reserves, you know, to our nature reserves and to, and to the Manx flora. Mm -hmm. But when the muckers see them, they all take their phones out of their pockets and go, oh, look, a wallaby. Because it's still exciting. Yeah, I and mean, I'm going to be disappointed if I don't see one. But then also, I, I want to see a cat without a tail as well, though, because I'm just a, a typical tourist. What kind of damage do they cause to the wild orchids? I mean, if they're in such close proximity, is that not a thing? They browse them and they trample on them. A lot of the questions around the wallabies we don't know. So, so in short, I'm hoping now that we start to answer some questions. One of them, we need to know how many there are. Mm -hmm. We need to know what they're eating. And also for the benefit of the wallabies, you know, if two or three wallabies have escaped 60 or 70 years ago, then in short, they've pretty much been having incest as a family and they're quite inbred and you see quite a lot of them are blind. There's questions around the longevity and we don't know that. Mm -hmm. So we have been collecting wallaby dung and the wallaby dung is going to be analysed in terms of getting the, the, the plant species that the, the wallabies have been eating on and we've been collecting that for four months four seasons of the year we've also been in contact with a guy whose business is is to use drones thermal imaging cameras typically in scotland to count numbers of number of deer etc mm -hmm. but he's recently been doing there's, there's actually a population of wallabies on an island in loch lomond and I believe there's another population of wallabies somewhere down that. south. That, that island was for sale recently. I saw it advertised. You could buy your own wallaby island. Possibly. But I know he's got the gig to go and count the wallabies there. So <laughs> we're looking at commissioning to come here. So you can imagine right now trying to spot the wallabies that will be in all this, this willow curragh as we're looking across mm -hmm. from this, the top of the bird tower. Um, 
it's hard to spot them. But in winter, with the leaves dropped, thermal imaging drone cameras, he's extremely confident that we'd be able to get a count. And if we do a count round the hot spots, then we can work out what a likely population figure is. Because some people say, oh, there's about 100. Other sure. people say, there's, oh, there's like one or 2,000 of them. But, but there are sightings of wallabies right across the island, almost as far south, right down just, just below you know, where we've been today. So single male wallabies do go walk about trying to find new females. So a lot of what the sightings well, are is single wallabies <laughs> where, they're going, where they're bounding around. But they're clearly, if they're spreading, then the whole population you would say is spreading, but we don't know. Sure. So it, we need to find out about wallabies. But I'm not um, of a mind that they need to go, but maybe we need to manage them in some way. Um, here's a question. We're looking out over a beautiful orchid meadow, wild orchid meadow, many, many different species, all very beautiful, some different colours. If that's the case, why is the national flower of the Isle of Man ragwort, or kushag, as it's called in Manx? <laughs> you could say that, I think, probably about lots of national... I'm <laughs> going to give you a cop-out answer now. <laughs> I don't know the reason why orchid isn't, but I think with lots of national flowers of different places, quite often they're a random, they're a random choice. Why have you chosen the... Is it a little turn as your yes. the Manx wildlife emblem animal? Why is that the case? goes back, uh, we're 50 next year, and there was an organisation that's got a huge long acronym that I can't quite remember. I'll, but before Max Wildlife Trust set up, there were a group of people working together for conservation in the island. Mm-hmm. There was a whole conversation, or a whole a threat actually, about an oil refinery being built on the northern tip. And in the, the land that that would have been built on and impacted on, they were looking for one of the iconic species to represent the campaign mm-hmm. and little terns nest on the beach so that the little turn was chosen as the symbol for what was then Manx Wildlife Trust to be set up in 1973 sure. as the representative of the, the, the species that we didn't want impacted from an, by an oil refinery being And it's being doing fine now? Still? Yes. Yeah. And the refinery never happened? Never happened. Are there any existential threats going on at the moment on the island that you were worried about? I think the, the conversation around energy is an important one. So there's conversations now around gas fields off the island and there's an organisation called Kroger Gas um, is going to try and find un- undersea gas. There's also conversations happening about offshore wind and onshore wind. So I think in those big questions around energy in the Isle of Man and our whole status has has been hopefully a you know sustainable biosphere mm-hmm. it's been interesting they actually. Were, they're big questions now. We're, it's, it's mad sunday today midway through the fortnight of the of the manx tt and we've been driving around the course in an electric van with the wildlife trust emblem on the outside like surrounded by motorbikes driving around the course and you can probably hear them in the background now they're zooming around the island it's it's bizarre to be talking about energy sources and and carbon emissions <laughs> when you've got a huge race going on at the same time. Yeah, and I think my colleagues stood over there would, would say that the vision for the Manx TT might be that, you know, electric bikes and classic bikes might be the, the next step forward. I, I would agree. Is there an electric race? I would agree with him. No, there used to be, and, and it was it was cut from, from my understanding. Well, they don't make a loud noise, and it wasn't that competitive. I, 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 again, I'm looking at Graham off camera, but I think there was less teams, wasn't there? And, and they don't make a nice noise, and it just wasn't popular. It became a one-horse race. Uh, so Why was a horse racing in a race with electric bikes? 
Uh, there was a manufacturer called Mugen who made a, a, an electric bike that was vastly faster than all the rest of the field, which was made up of universities and people who were do, doing great work to kind of advance the technology, but it just didn't make a great spectacle for the crowd. Sure. They do want to bring it back. There's a suggestion that they might get stock bikes and then raffle the seats off to riders, so then it's a true race. Okay. Um, but you know people will describe themselves as petrol heads i would describe myself as a petrol head and there's something to do with the noise and the smell of a of a classic bike um but my feeling is if we're going to look to be uh, carbon net zero in the isle of man in 2050 we have to be doing tt zero now so that when we get to 2050 we've got classic zero bikes we've got true racing and electric might not be the answer for the future there might be hydrogen there might be something else but we've got to be looking at the solutions now that's enough from you graham thank you very much Rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that that is genuinely really interesting. I mean, it's it's what we were talking about in our electric car. Also, you followed in the uh, petrol power diesel van. Diesel van. I've ordered an electric car. Well, you did say you two weeks waiting time. Mm. So, and I got the electric van. For, so, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but it is an ongoing. Like, it needs a bit of everything. I think. Like, you you can't just in terms of changing agricultural reform, you can't just tell the farmers to do one thing overnight. In terms of energy reform, you can't power all cars and alternate technology overnight. There is a shift that has to be transitioned in. What What difference does it make? Maybe not much. But what difference might it make if if we as a wildlife trust are driving around in an electric vehicle as an exemplar? you know showing people the way maybe for some people that's the tipper what we were saying before you know i can think of moments in my life where i saw something and said i just didn't know that Mm -hmm. and then it immediately changed my behavior most people it's a nudge 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 and then they change but we need to we need to nudge and not and not judge people if they're not already driving electric vehicles we need we need to show them the way i hope that one amateur racer doing their mad sunday dash around the island saw us in the 30 miles an hour electric van and went i'm driving the wrong thing Maybe. Uh, one of the things we touched on very briefly, we didn't go into more depth on, is that you're a UNESCO site. What does that mean? Uh, it's an international designation. It, it's a site that we're, we're deemed important as a biosphere. So UNESCO have different designations. The biosphere status was, was given to the Isle of Man as the whole island got this status uh, about six years ago. So we, the whole of the Isle of Man got the UNESCO status as a biosphere. That is not an environmental designation. It's about the whole island living in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me, so if I go travelling anywhere in the world, if there's a UNESCO something there, it immediately for me, as I'd say as an eco-traveller, I'd go, wow, that's cool. I'm, I'm interested in that. that. That moves it up the list of places I'd want to go. But the Isle of Man doesn't really champion its UNESCO biosphere status as much as I think we should be doing. Uh-huh. And I think part of the reason for that is that there is, it's almost used sometimes, instead of something to champion the island about, it's almost used sometimes as a, as a criticism, is that you know we shouldn't be doing that because we're UNESCO biosphere. We shouldn't be a biosphere because we're doing that. And I think for me, biosphere does not mean perfection. Mm-hmm. It's an enabler for people to work together towards a more sustainable future. So if we accept that it's not perfection, but we also accept that we are in a wonderful island. Well, let's not diss it. Let's, let's celebrate the fact that we're in a wonderful island, but also on the same breath say we're not perfect. How can we do it better? How can we be more sustainable? And that's where these big conversations about offshore and onshore wind, gas, 
and then you get into smaller development projects. Agriculture is the other, but you know, 88% new agri-environment scheme. Imagine the opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Imagine the opportunity if we got that right. Then you link that to peat restoration, you link that to water management, you link that to sewage, and suddenly we could have a model island here of how we do it. Not that difficult. How does the Isle of Man power itself? Does um, it power itself or does it have... We have different ways of generating. So one of the things that came recently was um, a combustor. We burn waste. So we burn waste to generate energy. But we also have a connector that connects us to, to the UK mainland that, mm -hmm. that takes energy in. But we also sell energy going from our plant that, that goes that across. Goes yeah. Any offshore? No. Not yet? Not yet. And very, very little. On, you, don't, you don't see many turbines either. Only independent people might have a small turbine. There's no, there's no wind farms in the Isle of Man. Why not? Too small? I don't think it's not, they're not too small. There was a wind farm on St Helena. It's fantastic. But, but, but again, in that microcosm, St Helena, um, their power there was a big generator with a ship that turned up once a month with diesel that filled up the generator fuel tanks and they burn... That's two of the many geese on the island. <laughs> that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, so, so no, we don't have... We're not too small for onshore sure. wind. They, and we're currently having chats with people that are scoping out to start putting some wind turbines up. That, that conversation is now starting to come in the Isle of Man, both onshore and offshore. Okay. Which island is better, the Isle of Man or St Helena? That's a good question. Um, both in different ways. <laughs> St Helena is better for whale sharks. <laughs> the Isle of Man's better for grey seals. <laughs> um, I think St Helena is a very different place to the Isle of Man because it's 10 miles by 6 and there's 4,000 people and they get one boat a month. Uh -huh. um, I think St Helena might be better because it's so intrinsically linked that the potential to get things done there with such a small island as a whole nation approach can be done quicker. Uh -huh. The Isle of Man with more people and more challenges therefore to get to get decisions and to get progress can be a bit slower here, but then a significantly amount quicker than the UK. Okay, there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world, right now, where would it be? Anywhere in the world? Oh, Galapagos, blue-footed boobies. <laughs> oh, no, in fact, the... Um, but then I always say I wouldn't go back to places, but I'd go back to the Galapagos. I always, when I have a travel, I always thought I'll go somewhere different, but the Galapagos is the only place I've promised myself I'm going back to. Why? What do you want to see? Other than uh, the blue footed boobies? I think just the whole nature and the experience. I'd like to do more diving if I went the second time. Mm -hmm. I want to see those lizards. Uh, the, um... Oh, I had a one-to-one -one with a sea iguana for about an hour. I was just sat there in the water with it sat next to me on a rock munching algae, algae. and I'm just sat there a metre away from this sea iguana as it munched algae. Oh, and they had to drag me back on the rib to take me back to the boat. I was just <laughs> just watching a sea yeah. iguana. How long were you there for? It was about, it was less than two weeks. Not enough. Not enough. So that, that's a place I've been to before. Um, All right, where new would you like to go? Where haven't you been? And as we've already discussed, you've been everywhere anywhere. No, so. I've not been everywhere. Um, I think this isn't relevant because I don't do the lottery because I always feel that you shouldn't you shouldn't live your life hoping you win money you should just crack on and do something about it but should someone sh should I have a rel re suddenly if I that come into lots of money that advice sounds so much better coming with a thick Yorkshire accent doesn't yeah, it yeah I think I would go I would I would travel around the Pacific 
and I would just visit lots of islands in the Pacific with a compressor and some dive kit and some and I, I guess my dream job was my dream job used to be to go and visit remote islands in the Pacific help people do sustainable agriculture and scuba dive in my spare time that'd be alright wouldn't it and there's a lot of people that could be helped to do sustainable farming better than they're doing it now you don't need much knowledge to grow plants better I heard that after you left St Helena every single school on the island had uh, an ethical agriculture sustainable course going on is that correct? Every high school in St Helena now has a conservation and agriculture course. That's incredible. Yes. How did you achieve that? Well there's only one high school first of all. <laughs> I get, I'm going to steal your punchline. How did I, well I did a wonder, one of the bits I work I did on St Helena was work for St Helena government and they wanted an agri-skills review of, uh-huh. of the of the farming in St Helena. So so basically I I I did focus groups, I travelled around lots of farms, I, I had lots of one-to-one conversations with farmers, did a very soft survey of them. And and one of the things that sadly in their microcosm, their tiny microcosm, is that the kids, you know, there was a, there was a Harper's agricultural centre linked to their high school that just hadn't been used for years. You know, the kids used to do agriculture and because that teacher left, they'd stop doing it. Sure. So I'm saying to them, well, don't just do agriculture, do agriculture and conservation together and do a bit of animal care because all the kids like rabbits and guinea pigs. Then you hook them in and then you teach them about sowing seeds and propagation and farming and then you bring conservation into it and you can get them to do flax control and plant tree ferns again back on centre. So they, they bought into this. So, so they wanted to help with that development of sustainable farming in the island. They wanted to get agriculture courses back in at the school. They wanted to revitalise their their previously buoyant centre and I, and I managed to persuade them that they shouldn't just do agriculture they should do agriculture and conservation together you sound like one of those teachers that everyone remembers do you, do you remember Mr Morris he was good wasn't he maybe I think I think probably I'd like to think that certainly no I've had students in the Welsh College of Horticulture I used to teach come back but but the but the students at Edinburgh Botanic Garden now there's a few of those that that went through our degree course in horticulture with plantsmanship or the MSc in biodiversity and taxonomy of plants that are in cool jobs now and I can think of you know hopeful guidance or steerage or kicking up the bum to go to Belize for two weeks (laughs) to get them to go out and grab the opportunities that that place offered I'd like to think that some of those people I helped them who's studying horticulture in Wales would need a kick up the arse to go to a couple of weeks to Belize to see some extra no no in in in, (laughs) one of the things I did in Edinburgh was was all these international projects and we used to have a degree in horticulture with plantsmanship so it was capped at 20 students Mm -hmm. and we'd get 20 in year one 20 in year two and then you'd three and four, four you'd, you'd get a few less but it was amazing I got placements in sorted out in, in Belize in Oman opportunity to go to Socotra China and I, sometimes I couldn't fill these placements up now there was a part that sometimes the students were, were brassic or mm-hmm. but sometimes I just wanted to inject dopamine in them and say you've got an opportunity here I mean who wouldn't want to go to a rainforest in Belize live at a field station help set up a nursery to propagate trees in the forest um, second question, who is your natural history hero? Well, it, as a kid it would have been Jack Cousteau. I quite like George Monbiot, but he's, I'm more, I don't think he's pragmatic enough. <laughs> but I'd still have a T-shirt with George Monbiot written on it. It's, it's not actually as many, you know, I, I'm not going to pick on Graham again, but we had a, the elm trees, we had a... We had a crescendo of social media last year there was an elm tree arch on the island that was going to be cut down and one of Graham's heroes who is? Chris Packham 
engage with us on social media. So a conversation me and Graham had one day with, with, with Chris Packham's PA on the phone where, where she was asking us who she needed to tag in one of Chris Packham's tweets to get the right people in the Alamein government to listen to him. And I think for a lot of people in the Wildlife Trust movement, you know, Chris Packham would be right up, up there. Mm-hmm. I guess f- for me, and this isn't an apology, because I've come from a horticultural education background to now in a Wildlife Trust, I probably haven't come up to I'd, I'd still go Jacques Cousteau. Maybe I'd say David Bellamy, the David Bellamy in our team. If he, if he gets all these farmers to do it better for nature in the Isle of Man, then he's got the opportunity. I love it. You've just There's a couple of people on that list who are very practical and pragmatic in doing things, but there's still a child in you, the part of you that wants to explore, that goes, yeah, there's Jacques Cousteau. I want to go down into the depths and sort of find new colourful stuff. Oh, definitely. I, I crave... I'm getting a bit deep now, but um, I don't think contentment is a... You don't have to be unhappy not to be content but I think contentment is because there's always something else to do isn't there are you content no because <laughs> there's always something else to do and there's always somewhere else to go and if you're content it's like you well that's it then isn't it isn't it but that I know that's not quite right because the people I've had this conversation with people but I, I when I did my masters I worked with an my best friend was an Indian guy called Gunti Anansaga and he said to me one day at the end of this course he said Lee said you know your problem is that you will never be content because you will finish this and then tomorrow you'll do something else and I thought yeah of course (laughs) you didn't get that I guess there's something kind of useful to moving from small islands to slightly larger islands but it means that you can sort of more easily see that you've done everything on the island before it's time to go it's nice to finish things Mm -hmm. and I'm conscious with a couple of my colleagues (laughs) listening on this I don't. I, I really dislike not finishing things. We should finish. If you start something, you should endeavour to finish it well, as well as you can. And you should always try and do things as better if you can. One of my th- and I've been stung on this a few times in life is that by trying to get things better, mm-hmm. people often feel that they're being criticised for what they're doing now. And I don't. It took me years to understand that. Be it students on assignments or people doing projects at work if you if you say to someone you know you could be holding that microphone better David <laughs> I could <laughs> you might take that as a criticism of how you were holding it before I'm just saying just just try and do it better sure there's a way to do it. don't be criticized you were doing it great before but now do it fantastic and there's a culture there and I, that's again maybe linked to not being content because I think you can always do it better well if 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 say your tenure here is the CEO of Manx Trust ended in six years time because you had completed the project that you said had to complete what is that project what would you like to finish complete to fully round in your time here as the CEO I think we need to get our island biosphere working together we need to get all the people that want to do conservation environment work working together that includes the government departments, we need to join the dots there. We don't need a separate agri-environment scheme and a separate biodiversity strategy and a separate climate change mitigate. When they're intrinsically linked. You can't do one without the other. But if people look at them in separate pockets, they're never going to re- achieve the potential. And then if you've got lots of conservation organisations as well that are working that... If we don't work towards the same vision, so we're, we're, we're trying to write now the state of nature document, which has been tried to, you know, pre, my predecessors tried. We need to know exactly where we are now and what there we get biggest bang for book for going forward. And I think the agri-environment scheme, getting people to work together more. If, if, if I can be a little bit of trying to 
get that to happen, then I think that would be satisfying. The Morris Manx mission. Well, I, I try and depersonalize. I, I've got to, I, I play a, in, in some ways, and I think that's really important in an island. If I went back to Centralina, the one thing I would do differently in Centralina is that in my second week there was an environmental conference where they flew people in from lots of other UK overseas territories, all came to Centralina. I just arrived in this wonderful place. I should have just kept my mouth shut. And it didn't. It didn't hurt me. But if you give views too soon in a place, mm-hmm. especially if, if you know you can look, you can look a bit know it all, or you can look a bit too keen. So, you know, I've only been here two years, but I am, and I say this tongue in cheek, I'm the CEO of Max Wildlife Trust. So, that is an important role. Deep. It's not about me. Yeah. But if the CEO of Max Wildlife Trust doesn't say things and doesn't get involved and doesn't tweet and doesn't do that, then I think I'd be failing. I think I need to. I need to. But I also need to know when I. I need to be humble and step away. So I wouldn't call it that. I think it's the Manx Wildlife Trust vision and the Wildlife Trust vision completely aligns. I can't stress it enough. The synchronicity. I got off a plane from Centralina, went straight to a Wildlife Trust conference that I'd never engaged with before in Cardiff, literally the day after. I went straight to Cardiff after two years in Centralina. And there at this meeting, that the, the previous CEO of the Central Wildlife Trust team to Craig had left. Craig had been appointed, but he hadn't started. Mm-hmm. So there was a hiatus. And there must have been six, seven, eight, nine, a dozen CEOs of Wildlife Trust got up and started criticizing heavily how it was all working i'm like wow <laughs> this is an interesting federation of wildlife trusts and it was just that i bit me lip sure <laughs> i'd learned so what's fascinating now is that craig coming in has completely gone the direction i'd like to think it would have gone if i'd had anything to do with it we need to work together as a federation we need to work together more and we need to go beyond nature reserves and we need to work in partnership and collaborate and we need to go bigger land you know lots of people on board that's why we've got this young lady on board to rev people up and get there's, them on board there's another person there's another person a mystery person there's a mystery person hi hannah do you want to say hi hello i'm hannah <laughs> what do you do hannah i'm the community ranger for manx wildlife trust great how's it going yeah it's good first three weeks um going very well enjoying it a lot um, final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Right now, oh, from extinction? Mm. Am I talking Isle of Man? Wherever. You can do an Isle well, of Man. I'd, 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 I'd like. be delighted if we could get pufflings on the car for man this year. <laughs> I, would, I would put that top of the list. Nothing would delight me more than to see pufflings fledge in the, in the car for man. That would be very, very cool. And if you wanted to bring an extinct creature back? What about an, a, a great orcling? Great orc would be nice. Isn't it sad that the dodos went as well, that we, yeah. that we hunted them out on small islands? That was an example of an island species that was just hunted out because of sailors. The sad thing on the glass where you hear about the tortoises aren't on a lot of the islands now because the ships would just put them upside down in the holds and they'd just sit there on the backs for weeks dying until they were for fresh meat. So that's, we, we can't end on that. So... <laughs> Megadons. Let's bring megadons. Let's bring dinosaurs back. Dinosaurs are still in. I always liked dinosaurs as a kid. 
and you don't like them now? That's no, still I the do. most amazing thing. We did an amazing thing at Edinburgh Zoo. We had a, with an animatronic dinosaur displayed. One of the first things I did there was was design the, the landscaping for a, an animatronic dinosaur. The first display. thing I did was climb up on the back of the animatronic no. dinosaur and ride it like a cowboy in the no. Jurassic. But interestingly, one of my friends that still they must be doing dinosaurs again because she put a picture a picture out I saw this morning where her child was inside the mouth of a dinosaur at Edinburgh Zoo. <laughs> Unless she photoshopped it. Is there an interesting fossil record on the Isle of Man? Ooh, there's some very interesting fossils down at Scala, our nature discovery centre. We used to have a giant elk on the Isle of Man, and I don't know if they're fossils, they're more conserved bones, but, but certainly the, the giant elk would have been interesting. Is that the Irish elk? Is Pass. that that one? There's, um, there's a couple of elk as part of the Crystal Palace dinosaur, you know, the Victorian ones that are anatomically incorrect. There's a couple of elk down there, I think they're Irish elk, and they originally had some real horns put on the sculptures. Okay. But they were so big and so heavy that it broke the neck of the concrete sculptures that they were on, which made you realise quite how powerful these old elk were. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great thing to bring back. I'd love to walk across the Isle of Man, not being able to hear the electric bicycles going round and round and round and round, um, and seeing giant antlers going through the giant giant antlers and wallabies going through the undergrowth. Hmm. Super, Lee. Thank you very much indeed. I've had a wonderful day. Thank you. Should we go and find a wallaby? Let's go and find a wallaby. Do a circuit, find a wallaby. And we did. About three minutes after I pressed stop on the recording device, we saw some genuine Isle of Man escape artist wallabies. And if you'd like to see a photo of them, head across to our Patreon page where you can also find some extra offcuts from previous episodes. That's offcuts of audio, not offcuts of wallabies. Anyway, an Irish elk antler-sized thank you to Lee and for all at the Wildlife Trusts, Manx and otherwise, for making this interview happen. It was a real treat to finally head across to the man and indeed for the surreal tt weekend too i implore you to do the same but for now for more info on lee the isle of man and the manx wildlife trust and more head across to treesacrowd.fm you'll even find a little video lee and i made for the wildlife trust's marine week so you'll be able to watch me interview for a change as opposed to simply listen and If that five-minute video whets your appetite and you'd like to be present at a live recording for an upcoming episode of Trees A Crowd, then I will be speaking to naturalist, writer and fellow Wildlife Trust ambassador Sophie Pavel at Stanford's Bookshop in Covent Garden on the 1st of November. Ticket info can be found again on our website. But until the first Tuesday of next month, where I shall either meet you in person at Stanford's or through the airwaves wherever we are right now, have a wonderful month and start planning your trip to the Isle of Man. Stat. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.